To remind you of the context of what we are considering together, I would read again the first seven verses of Paul's of the 13th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. The first seven verses of the 13th chapter. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, Custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, this is the um, statement which the Apostle makes at this point in working out in detail the um, relationship of the Christian men to the world in which he still lives. And having dealt with various aspects of the problem, he now here deals with this whole question of the Christian's relationship to the state. And having considered that personally and individually, we are now looking at the problem as it confronts us in terms of the question of the problem of the relationship between the church and the state. The church, a gathering of Christian people. What is the relationship between Christians as a body or groups of people as churches to the state? Now this is the one classical statement in the New Testament scriptures as we are seeing of this uh, great subject. There are other references to it, but this is certainly the most extended treatment given to the subject anywhere in the New Testament. Now, we have shown that there is a big division, two main points of view. Those who regard the church and the state as being one, which we divided up into the Roman Catholic view, which says that the church should control the state, and the Erastian view, which says that the state should control the church. We've dealt with that, and then we are considering the second major view on this subject, which is that the church and the state are essentially different and distinct. Now, here again, uh, we've given the reasons for that, and uh, we began our discussion of this last Friday evening. And once more, I had to point out that there were two major divisions. There was the position taken by most of the Protestant bodies, you can call them mainline Protestants if you like, because uh, they're the better known ones, such uh, as the Presbyterians and the Independents in, in the main, and so on, and the Puritans before that uh, here in this country. The bulk of the Protestants, that's the one division. Then the second division is what have always been known as the separatists, people who believed in separating from all association with the state. Now, the main bodies, they believed 
in an alliance between the church and the state. They said there is a difference, a distinction. And they objected, at any rate, strongly in theory, to what had happened both under Roman Catholicism and Erastianism. Nevertheless, they believed in an alliance and an association between the two. And as we've already seen, they tended to give a good deal of place and of position and of power to the state in the affairs of the church. We've considered that in terms of Zwingli and Calvin and uh, the main Presbyterian position as expanded in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I showed how the reformed bodies on the continent who used the Belgic Confession uh, took virtually exactly the same position. They regarded the state as being the instrument of the church in the matter of administering discipline and so on. They gave power to the magistrate to call synods and things like that. Now, we saw that in dealing with the statement concerning magistrates in the Belgic Confession and also in the Westminster Confession of Faith, and yet we ended with my quotations from Andrew Marvel to show that there was an uneasiness about it all. Though in general they took that position, they were always a bit unhappy about this. And you have these individual protests from time to time. Now then, I must go on with this because, as I've been trying to show, all this history is most important for us. All this, of course, is very relevant at the present time. Whether we like it or not as Christian people, we are involved in all this. Now, it's been, I think, one of the greatest sins, especially of evangelical people, to say, now, I'm not interested in all this. I can't be bothered with it. As long as we in our local church can go on evangelizing and having fellowship together, what does all this matter? Well, the answer to that is that if you feel it doesn't matter, you'll soon find yourself in the Church of Rome, and then you'll be very agitated, and you'll begin to wonder how you ever got there. The answer will be that it was due to your ignorance. You said you didn't mind about these things, but there are others who do mind. And they're acting very much at the present time and are taking decisions on behalf of the churches. So it does behoove us to be very clear about all these things. Not only that, I want to suggest another very practical reason for our studying this very matter. I think that this whole confusion as between church and state has been, and I would suggest still is, one of the greatest obstacles to true evangelism. It has offended many people, and still does. And in any case, as I'm hoping to show you, it does introduce this element of confusion, which always does harm to the gospel. You will find historically in this country, for instance, that it is this state church idea that has generally resisted true revival and the efforts of the most notable evangelists that God has produced in the Christian church. So, it's very important we should go on with this history. Now, I come next, therefore, in this historical sequence, and I'm trying to take it as far as we can in a chronological order. We've got to consider now the case of the Pilgrim Fathers and the American colonists. You are familiar, in general, I'm sure, with this history. From the very beginning of the Protestant Reformation, there were people who were not satisfied with it in this country, in the Church of England, the people who became known as Puritans. They felt that the Reformation had stopped short, that while matters of doctrine and the doctrine of salvation in particular had been dealt with and had been put right, that there was a failure 
to carry on and to carry through the Reformation into matters of uh, ceremonies and ritual and government of the church and things like that. Now, these men became known as Puritans. They felt that the church must be purified through and through. And as time went on, they divided up into various other groups. I mustn't go into this tonight. I hope that something will be published fairly soon, which I had the opportunity of saying recently at the so-called Puritan Conference, which may help you a little with regard to that. All I'm saying at the moment is this, that there were people who became more and more disturbed with the Elizabethan settlement, the Anglican Church in this country. Many of them went over to Holland. They were persecuted, they were imprisoned and threatened with worse things. Many were put to death. So many of them escaped temporarily to Holland, where they were given asylum and given a good welcome, and they formed churches there. And it was as the outcome of that that the Pilgrim Fathers crossed the Atlantic in the Mayflower in uh, the year 1620. Now, here, you see, was this great new continent which had been discovered about 14, in the 1480s by Columbus. Now, here was this great opportunity, and they felt if only we could go there, we could start a new life and we could worship in the way in which we believe. That was the kind of spirit that animated the Pilgrim Fathers, you remember. They left this country to go to that new country, not merely to found a new state, but primarily to have deliverance from the ecclesiastical tyranny in, under which they had suffered in this country. They wanted freedom to worship God in the way that they considered to be right and to be biblical. Now that was the main motive that made them expose themselves, wives and children, to the rigors of crossing the Atlantic in those days and suffered untold hardships. It was with this great desire to escape this ecclesiastical tyranny. And yet this is, this is something which is almost incredible. Having got there and having started this new life in this new colony, they in turn proceeded to do the exact thing from which they were escaping in this country. They themselves became religious and ecclesiastical tyrants. Now, the, the story, of course, is a most fascinating one and a most important one. There is a very good book which will give you an account of all this. I believe I'm right in saying that it is obtainable in this country now as a paperback. I'm not quite sure. It is called Pilgrims and Strangers. It will give you a very interesting account of this. And there are other books, the biographies of different men, which will do the same thing. Now, this is the kind of thing that they enacted. In Massachusetts, for instance, which was the place where the first settlement occurred, you remember they landed at Plymouth Rock, and they proceeded to colonize around there. And so you get the state of Massachusetts. Now, in Massachusetts, the franchise, that's to say the right of voting or taking part in government, was confined to church members. If you were not a church member, you hadn't got a right to exercise the franchise. In the same way, like Calvin and Knox, they expected the state to enforce church discipline. In other words, they were utterly intolerant. Now, there were great men amongst them. One of them was a man called John Cotton. The most important man, John Cotton. It was a book by John Cotton, 
that uh, changed the great uh, Dr. John Owen, perhaps the greatest intellect amongst all the Puritans, into an independent. John Cotton had been an Anglican vicar in Boston in Lincolnshire. That's where the name of Boston in Massachusetts has come from. Uh, he, he was the man who was responsible for giving it the name. But if you read the life story of John Cotton, you will find that it was a most painful process for him to cease to be an Anglican in his point of view of ecclesiastical discipline and to become a true independent. You see, these men, they did found independent churches. They were no longer Anglicans. They were independent of Anglicanism. And yet, they did impose this system upon all their people. I shall tell you more about this in detail in a moment. In other words, you can describe these men as semi-separatists. They had separated from the state church idea up to a point, but they'd stopped at a given point. They still believed that it was the duty and the business of the state, the magistrates, the governing powers, to exercise discipline on behalf of the church. So I would call them semi-separatists. Now, there were similar people in this country. The men uh, from whose church the Pilgrim Fathers went to America, the famous John Robinson, who never really went there himself. He'd intended going, but he delivered them a great farewell sermon, which is a well-known address. He himself was a semi-separatist. He uh, believed in having churches separate from the established Church of England, yet he was equally agreed that this uh, kind of a state should be used in carrying out church discipline. And he didn't believe in separating completely from the established church. They would occasionally conform. And this was true not only of John Robinson, but also of another man called Henry Jacob. Again, in that address which I delivered and which I trust will be printed ere long, I, I said something about him. And for this reason, that this man, Henry Jacob, was the first minister of the first continuing congregational church in this country. And that happened in 1616. Last year was the 350th anniversary of the first true continuing congregational chapel in this country. And it was in Southwark in South London. Now, Jacob, again, was exactly one of these semi-separatists. He wasn't as extreme as there was a man like John Cotton and so on. But they did believe in using the state in the administration of discipline. Well, now, there you are then. We've considered, you see, the, uh, the teaching of Calvin and what was practiced in Geneva and Zwingli before him. We've seen the uh, Presbyterian attitude, as seen particularly, of course, in Scotland, but also in the Reformed churches on the continent. And now we've seen this position of the American colonists. Now, they are particularly interesting because they had an opportunity, more or less, of doing anything they liked. Of course, they were still subject to the government of this country. They were nothing but a colony, and the land had been granted them by the British government and the king. But they did have an opportunity, and yet that is exactly what they did. They remained a sort of semi-separatists. And in general, they conformed entirely to the teaching of the Belgic and the Westminster Confessions of Faith on this whole matter. We leave them at that. 
let's turn to the other group, which I put under the heading here, I see, of the free church idea. And that's a very good way of putting it, because we're dealing with the question of the association between the church and the state. Now, the very term free church tells you the essential position. It is a church which is altogether free from the state. What's the, what is the history of this? Well, this is something that began with the people who were known as separatists. And they began in the reign of Queen Elizabeth in the 1580s. You remember I told you last week that the Presbyterians branched off from the Puritans somewhere around about 1570 through the teaching and the preaching of a great professor of theology at Cambridge called Thomas Cartwright. But here was a new group who objected also to the Presbyterian attitude. And they, these said that there should be no connection between the state and the church. Uh, these are called separatists. Now, there are many names here. Some of the important ones are these. The first, of course, was a man called Robert Brown. And that is why, for a long time in this country, independents or congregationists were known as Brownists, because they were followers, at least had derived many of their ideas from the teaching of Robert Brown. He was a strange man, having issued a book in which he, to which he gave the title Reformation Without Tarrying for Any, by which he meant this, that you shouldn't wait until the result of your teaching had turned the magistrates into godly people who were prepared to take a scriptural view of these matters. He said, don't waste your time, don't wait. Reformation without tarrying for any. Having done that, he eventually went back on it all and spent... Uh, Many, many years of his life as a very quiet, obscure, unknown Anglican vicar. And he died as such in the 17th century. But he'd sown a seed. His work was taken up by three amazing men. Henry Barrow, another man called Greenwood, and a man called John Penry. There's nothing more heroic, I think, in all ecclesiastical history, and in many ways in secular history, than the story of Barrow, Greenwood and John Pendry. The three of them were put to death, if I remember rightly, in 1593. They'd been imprisoned, they'd been hounded, and eventually they were put to death, and they died gladly. I was tempted, but I didn't want to take too much time on this, to read John Pendry's last letter to his wife just before his execution. One of the most moving documents I think I've ever read. Now, these men were the separatists. They said, church and state are entirely separate. The state must do nothing in connection with the church, nor the church with the state. These things are quite separate, and you don't call the magistrate to administer discipline on behalf of the church or anything else. Now, they were bitterly opposed, of course, not only by the Anglicans, but they were equally bitterly opposed by the Puritans. The Puritans, remember, were mainly people who believed in staying in the Church of England, but reforming it. And they were equally bitterly opposed by the Presbyterians. Everybody was against them and denounced them with great violence. However, that was their testimony. They claimed complete freedom of worship, complete religious freedom, and this separation of the church entirely from the state. At first, they were independents or congregationists. But in the early years 
of the next century, the 17th century, some of them began to adopt what we now call Baptist views. And there were two men. One was called Smythe, S-M-Y-T-H-E, and the other was called Thomas Helwys, H-E-L-W-Y-S. Smythe and Helwys really were the founders of the Baptist causes in this country, and they issued a great declaration in 1611. This has got nothing to do with my direct theme, but as I may not have an opportunity of saying things like these uh, while expanding the scriptures, it's very interesting that both these men who had now adopted Baptist views, by which they meant chiefly that you shouldn't baptize infants, but only adults and confession of faith, both of them believed in baptism not by immersion, but by sprinkling. And they sprinkled one another. Most people don't realize these things, but Baptists from about 1610 to 1640 did not immerse at all. Baptists didn't. They believed in, in, in sprinkling, in affusion. Very interesting point, and I think one which people tend uh, to forget. However, so you've got two bodies now of separatists when you come up to about 1640 in the beginning of the Civil War, the Independents and the Baptists. They were very small bodies. They were growing very slowly. And, of course, as we shall see, they were very greatly helped by the Civil War and by the period of the Commonwealth. They suffered greatly, but they adhered to their principles. Now, this brings me to say just a word about the great Oliver Cromwell. Surely, in many ways, the greatest Englishman who's ever lived. And even his ancestry is interesting, if you examine it. Uh, Cromwell was an independent. And uh, nevertheless, though he was an independent and a very convinced independent, he wasn't clear on this church-state relationship. Now, I've been saying about others, and I must say it about him of all men. We must be careful not to judge these men. Their position was almost impossible, particularly that of Oliver Cromwell. A king had been beheaded. It was such an unknown thing, such a strange thing. The Church of England as such had been abolished in one sense. I mean, the Episcopal Church of England had been abolished. What were you to do? Well, Cromwell was, after all, the, the, the Lord Protector. It was his business to govern, and he felt that something must be done. So he did order church affairs. He believed that the state had got to do this. So he appointed trials to examine preachers. He appointed preachers and so on. In a sense, he continued exactly the same system as Elizabeth and the Stuarts had done before him, only, of course, he was doing it with different ideas. He was not an Episcopalian. He was a true independent. Nevertheless, he believed in the state church as the others had done before him. But this is where we must pay tribute to this man. Though, in practice, he felt he had to do that. Otherwise, you'd have had nothing but chaos. And he always had the argument that the majority of the Anglican clergy were not only illiterate, but so many of them were immoral and neglecting their congregations, that you hadn't got preachers. You had to produce them, and you had to train them, and you had to impose them, as it were, upon the people. Those were his arguments. Now, I say that in spite of all this, and in spite of certain blots, perhaps, upon his great record, here was a man who had very clear ideas about religious tolerance, and freedom of worship. He was the first man to give freedom of worship to the Jews and to give them a place in the life 
of this country. Now, there is the story of Oliver Cromwell. You see, the Brownists and Barrow, Greenwood, and Penry had sown a seed. But this seed really only came to true fruition, or at least developed most during the time of the common. Now, that brings me to the people who really are most responsible for the free church idea. There, is the, there are the antecedents, there is the historical background. But all this really came to a kind of focus in this way. First, let me deal with the United States of America. And I have to mention here a most remarkable man, whose name was Roger Williams. A most important man in the history of religion, especially of religious tolerance, but a most important man in the whole history of the United States of America. In many ways, he is a man who is more responsible for the United States of America and its outlook upon these matters than any other single man. And it's interesting that he's been greatly honored by American historians in this present century and particularly at the present time. Now, what are the facts about Roger Williams? He's a man who's been not only neglected in the past, but he's been abused and misunderstood. That, of course, has been the fate of most reformers and of great men. They get vilified often in their own day and generation and are only appreciated perhaps centuries afterwards. Of course, it happened to Oliver Cromwell. After his death and the restoration of Charles II, Cromwell's name was execrated and vilified. His body was even disinterred and exposed to public ridicule and scorn. And everything that could be done was done to besmirch his name. And you had to wait until Thomas Carlyle came into being and began to write in the 1830s before this country began to realize again what a great man Oliver Cromwell was. Well, something similar has happened to Roger Williams. I'm not putting him into the same category exactly as Oliver Cromwell because he wasn't a statesman, he was a minister. But as a thinker, I would certainly bracket him with Oliver Cromwell and indeed perhaps even put him ahead of him. Here was a man who was born in this country in 1600. There's a bit of a dispute as to whether he was born in Wales or in Cornwall. Uh... It doesn't make much difference, they're both Celtic. Um, he was trained, as most of these people were, in those times at Cambridge. He was ordained as an Anglican minister. But from the beginning, he was unhappy. He was unhappy as an ordained minister of the Church of England. The result was that in 1631, he crossed the Atlantic and went to Boston. Now, here he thought he was going to find freedom and the congenial atmosphere for which he longed. But when he got there, he found himself most unhappy and dissatisfied. He found that there they hadn't understood these matters and they hadn't renounced the errors of the National Church in England. They'd formed these separate churches, but they hadn't renounced what they'd once belonged to in this country before they'd crossed the Atlantic. This is how he put it. Being unanimously chosen teacher at Boston. He was given a great reception when he got there. He was a very able man. They saw his qualities and they wanted to appoint him as a teacher of the churches. Being unanimously chosen teacher at Boston, I conscientiously refused because I durst not officiate to an unseparated people as, upon examination and conference, I found them to be. 
He said they hadn't separated far enough. He wanted them to make a public declaration of their repentance for having had communion with the churches of England while they lived there. They'd never done that. They were saying, either saying nothing about the Church of England or saying that the Church of England was, after all, a true church, but they proposed to do something different. He wanted them to repent and to make a public declaration of their repentance for having had communion with the churches of England while they lived there. Now, here's another thing. He also taught that the magistrate had no right to punish a breach of the Sabbath or any other offense as it was a breach of the first table of the law. Well, as a result of this, he didn't settle in Boston, but he moved off to a place somewhere to the north of Boston known as Salem, a famous place and most interesting in the history of these matters, Salem. I had the pleasure of visiting Salem uh, in 1963 and of telling people who lived there something about all this they'd never heard of it before. Now, there he was appointed again as, as a pastor, but he soon got into difficulties. The people down at Boston uh, had influence in the governmental sense on the whole surrounding area, and he had to move from Salem and went to a place called Plymouth, which is still there, of course, and named after Plymouth in this country, for two years or so, and then went back again uh, to Salem. But because of these views of his, in 1636, he was ordered to be deported by an order of the court. Now, this was the edict which they passed. If any person or persons within this jurisdiction shall, shall deny the magistrates lawful right or authority uh, to punish the outward breaches of the first table of the law, every such person or persons should be sentenced to banishment. And that is what they did with him. They sentenced him to banishment to be deported. And the officers of the law were sent to arrest him, to put him on board a ship to send him back to England. He heard what was coming, and he escaped just in time. He went further south, and he was the man who established what was the town that became known as Providence. And he was the founder also of the Rhode Island State. The Rhode Island state in America was founded by this man, Roger Williams. Now, he did all this, you see, because of his religious ideals. He believed in complete freedom of worship, that the state has no right to, to dictate what a man believes. Under the government of Massachusetts, you had to believe what was the prevailing view. As I say, you shouldn't even be a citizen if you didn't. He objected to all that on grounds of religion primarily. But he also developed certain political ideas and is in many ways the father of American democracy. In 1639, he adopted Baptist views. He hadn't been a Baptist until then. He'd been an independent, a separatist. But in 1639, he adopted Baptist views. But he wasn't even happy with them. Now I want to be fair on all sides in the case of Roger Williams. He was undoubtedly a genius. But as geniuses will sometimes, he tended at times to be difficult. And uh, difficult at least to live with. He was a great personal friend of Oliver Cromwell and of John Milton the poet, 
and of other leaders in this country. He came over several times in connection with the business of Rhode Island, and they all greatly respected him. Even the governors of Massachusetts who went to, uh, uh, to banish him, they paid the greatest possible tribute, not only to his character and his godliness, but also to his ability as a preacher and as a teacher. But he was a man who tended to press his logic a little bit too far, so that in the end he found it difficult to agree with anybody. Now, Roger Williams, you can see therefore, is a most important man. As I'm going to tell you, in America there is complete separation between church and state. It is mainly due to the influence and the teaching of Roger Williams. Now then, there's one branch of the separatists. In this country, this same kind of thing was done by a group of people who became known as the Lemovers. Those of you who know the history of the uh, civil war in this country will know that in Cromwell's army, in his model army in particular, there was a great gathering of godly men. They believed they were fighting the battles of the Lord in fighting Charles the first and the royalists. <laughs> now, some of these men became known as sectaries. They were men, in other words, who developed extreme separatist views. There were many divisions of them, people called diggers, as well as these whom I'm now referring to were known as levelers. They were known as the levelers. You see, they were asserting the equality of all men and the equality and freedom of religion, and so on. Now, the greatest leader amongst them was a man called John Lilburn, L-I-L-B-U-R-N-E. It's extraordinary, again, how these people have been neglected. I took the trouble this afternoon to turn up the Schaff Herzog uh, Dictionary of Religious Knowledge to see what they've got to say about the levelers and John Lilburn. I found they hadn't a single word to say about the levelers or Lilburn. Not a word, which is, which is an extraordinary thing. There used to be a paperback in this country available with bearing the title The Levelers. Whether it's still available, I don't know. I certainly remember a book which was published about ten years ago, I think it was, on The Levelers and John Lilburn, by a man whose name is H.N. Brailsford. Now, this is the tragic part of all this. Brailsford. I don't think he's still alive. He was an atheist and a so-called free thinker. He wasn't interested in the religion of these men, but he was tremendously interested in their political ideas. And they undoubtedly were pioneers in all this, not only in the matter of freedom of worship and of religion, but they had ideas concerning democracy, which have proved to be the seed thoughts of what we are enjoying at the present time. I remember reading somebody saying about 20 years or so ago that most of the, the enactments, the reforms carried in this present century by liberal governments and labor governments had all been anticipated by these levelers. It took 300 years for the majority of the people in this country to see the things that were seen by these men. Let me quote you a modern writer. He says, Anglo-Saxon democracy was born in June 1647 when at Newmarket and Triplo Heath, the Puritan army covenanted not to disband until its rights and liberties were assured. 
Now that is the real beginning of democracy in this country as we know it now. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this for this reason. You've read recently in the papers that the so-called humanists are getting very active in this country. They're going to hold conferences now. They're going to claim time on the BBC. They're going to petition Parliament to see to it that all teachers in schools should have training in the ideas of humanism. It's becoming an active and an aggressive force. It is anti, not only anti-Christian, but anti-religious. It's atheistical. It believes in men and the power of men. It will probably be the great fight that we'll have to wage for many years in this country. This aggressive humanism. Scientific humanism, classical humanism. It, 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 it's concerned to do away with religion altogether. And it talks a lot about freedom, freedom for men, political freedom, and so on. What they don't know, and what is really important we should inform them of, is this. That they wouldn't be able to do what they are doing and what they want to do, were it not for these religious men in the, sixth, in the 17th century, these levelers and others. Now, these people, as I told you about Brailsford, you see, they pick out the story of these men. We, uh, Christian people, have forgotten them. We, uh, we, haven't, uh, we haven't discovered the facts. We've been so concerned about cultivating our own souls. We don't know our own history. We don't know where our liberties have come from. That's why we're so ready to sell them. It's because we are ignorant of the Protestant martyrs that we are smiling upon Rome and ready to be smiled upon by Rome. And we are ready to sell so many of our liberties just because we are ignorant. We don't realize the price that has been paid for them by our forefathers, even the price of blood. And so, you see, these men, they're interested in these people solely from the political standpoint, not realizing that their political ideas were based upon their religious ideas. It was their understanding of the truth concerning man, as taught in the Bible, and their ideas of government, as learned in the same place, that led to their ideas even on these uh, political matters. So let us be aware of these things. Let's familiarize ourselves with them. And let us tell these people that all the benefits which they're enjoying and of which they talk so much, putting them against the Christian faith, that they've all come out of the Christian faith. I've often said it from this pulpit. Your hospitals were started by Christian people. Your educational system was started by Christian people. Your poor law, relief and so on, was started by Christian people. All of these things have come from Christian people. Even the idea of political democracy. It has come from people like Roger Williams, John Lilburn, and the levelers in this country. Very well. Now then, this brings us, you see, more or less up, up till 1660 or 1662. You remember how Charles II was brought back in 1660. That's the greatest blot on the escutcheon of Presbyterianism. They really were responsible for that. I know they were misled. Charles II, like his father, was a liar. And he lied to them. And he went back on his promises. But they should never have trusted him. However, they did in order, as they thought, to get their ends, they thought that the Church of England would be turned into a Presbyterian church, and so on. It was sheer folly. And in 1662, Charles II and his advisors showed their hand, and those 2,000 men, more or less, you remember, were ejected 
from their livings in the Church of England in this country. Now then, after that, these nonconformists, people who had been called Puritans before, all came to see these things quite clearly. And from there on, they became separatists. So that from about 1662, it is true to say that the Congregationists or Independents, whichever you prefer to call them, and the Baptists were true separatists and had all their ideas clarified about all this. And that has been the position right down until the present time. They believed in complete separation now. Well, now there is more or less a review of the history for you. What is the position at the present time with regard to this whole question? Well, it's roughly this. The Roman Catholic Church, which would like to dominate the states everywhere, of course, is no longer able to do so. Doesn't even do so in Italy. And the best she can do now is to form what she calls concordats with statesmen. The then Pope made a concordat with Mussolini. Another one made a concordat with Hitler. This is the only thing they can do. I believe they've done the same in Spain with Franco and so on. In other words, they've been shorn of their powers. But they still haven't renounced the theory. And as I reminded you last week, I think it was, the Vatican still regards itself as a state and is regarded by other states as a state. That is why statesmen from this country and others and heads of states uh, go and pay their calls upon the Pope. They don't visit him uh, so much as a religious leader, but as the head of a state, and as a man who has still a lot of influence upon states throughout the world, because so many of the rulers and governors and people in authority are still Roman Catholics. But actually, they are no longer in the position to exercise the power and authority that they did from the time of Constantine right through to the Protestant Reformation and even afterwards. That is their position. In the United States, I've already described to you, there there is a complete separation between church and state. They believe in religious freedom, but there is no such thing as a state church, and there is no direct association between the church and the state. What about the British Isles? Well, I'll take them in this order. Church of Scotland. There you've got what may be described as a modified establishment. The church and state are quite distinct. The state can't interfere in the spiritual matters of the church. And yet, they hold on to the notion of the idea of establishment. That is why you'll be reading next May, when the Church Assembly of the Church of Scotland comes on, you'll be reading of a man called the Lord High Commissioner, who is appointed by the Queen to represent her in the proceedings of the General Assembly. It's a kind of modified establishment, mainly uh, something on paper and really not of any practical significance. In the case of Ireland... The Church of England was once established in Ireland, but the Irish Church was disestablished last century. In the case of Wales, the Anglican Church there was the established Church until this present century. I believe I'm right in saying that the Welsh Disestablishment Bill was passed in 1914, was suspended until the end of the First World War, and was put into operation in 1920 so that there is no establishment 
in Wales or in Ireland, and only this modified establishment in Scotland. What about England? Well, of course, in England there is still this established church. And there's one very interesting thing about this. I mention this so that we can now leave this historical consideration altogether. There has been considerable talk about disestablishing the Church of England. But what is interesting is that it's generally come from the Anglo-Catholics. And the greatest opponents of disestablishment in England have always been the Evangelicals. And they still are the greatest opponents of it at the present time. How does this come to pass? You'd expect it to be different, wouldn't you? Well, this is what happens when you begin to indulge in ecclesiastical politics and use human wisdom. The Anglo-Catholics want disestablishment in order that their party, which is in control mainly in the Church of England, can do anything it likes. At the present time, it can't. You remember the Anglo-Catholics produced a new prayer book in 1928. It was presented to Parliament and it was turned down. The Anglo-Catholics, of course, were furious. And they say, we must have liberty in spiritual matters. It is wrong that we should be curbed like this by the power of the state. So the Anglo-Catholics, including the present Archbishop of Canterbury, are believers in disestablishment. But for that reason, they still want to go on with endowment, which means that they get paid and money produced by the state, uh, but they don't want to, uh, to be controlled in that sense by Parliament. They still want the prerogatives of establishment, but they want what they call spiritual freedom. And they've made many moves in that direction. Well, then you may ask me, why do the evangelicals then oppose this? The people whom you'd expect to be in favor of the spiritual freedom of the church. The answer is the same, only that you look at it from the other angle. The evangelicals know that if you disestablished the Church of England, the power would be put into the hands of the bishops. And as most of the bishops are Anglo-Catholics in their doctrine, it would be very bad indeed for evangelicals. So they oppose it for that practical reason only, that pragmatic reason chiefly, that uh, it would put them into a worse position. Now, you see, they have every hope and expectation that when the Anglo-Catholics and others are trying to produce their innovations, they will be turned down by the Parliament. So it suits the evangelicals at the moment to resist the efforts and endeavors to disestablish the Church of England. But I want to consider this with you next time and evaluate it in the light of the teaching of the Scripture. It is an argument, of course, from expediency. And the question for us is whether we can allow that, whether we recognize that. And I hope, God willing, to be able to go on, therefore, to consider this question of the relationship of the church and the state, which we've traced now in the course of history. We're going to take all this, and you see what a voluminous history it is. I've been giving you very brief summaries. We will ask the question, how has all this become possible and come to pass in the light of the teaching of the Bible? You may say to me, what's that got to do with us? Well, the answer is this, you see. That is the sort of thing that Christian people find themselves doing when they are governed by tradition rather than by the teaching of the Bible. So it's a great lesson for us in our own day and generation. So much then.
for this historical review and we can now come and put it all into the light of the teaching of the scriptures. O oh Lord our God, we again turn unto thee and acknowledge our frailty, our fallibility, and our folly. O oh God, we thank thee more than ever that the church is thine, and that because she is thine, the gates of hell shall not prevail against her, and that our ultimate triumph is certain and sure. O oh God, we humble ourselves under thine almighty hand and pray that thou wouldest lead us, guide us, guard us, and protect us. We dare not lean to our own understanding. Keep us, we pray thee. In accordance with the teaching of thy most holy word, enable us to learn the lessons of history in order, O God, that we may serve thee truly and bring glory to thy name and the extension of thy kingdom. And now may the grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and the love of God, the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this our short, uncertain earthly life and pilgrimage and evermore. Amen.